Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. What is the perfect story? Does it exist? Is there a tangible formula? Has the perfect story ever been told? And if so, are we simply trying to retell this story over and over? This podcast is called The Midnight Myth. And somewhere between the black of night and the break of dawn, there is a story, and it's perfect. My name is Derek Jones. And my name is Laurel Hostack. Welcome to The Midnight Myth. about 11 years old, uh, the school nurse came into my science class, my sixth grade science class, and showed us some videos and talked to us and separated the boys from the girls and talked to us about the changes we could anticipate coming in our bodies soon. I have no idea where this is going, but go on. We watched a video uh, that will stick with me for the rest of my life explaining the process of a female puberty to us girls who were in the class. And there was this demonstration in the video of this girl's mom making pancakes for breakfast. And she used the pancake batter in the pan to illustrate the shape of a uterus and fallopian tubes. That's quite brilliant. Was this video made in the 50s? Uh, I want to say 80s or 90s. Damn. Uh, and I was, see it in my mind's eye as from the 50s. It was pretty strange. And uh, it, it, it had never occurred to me to equate the changes I could anticipate in my body with uh, pancakes and breakfast. But it turned it into something that was as natural as getting up in the morning and eating something before going to school. But the images were interesting. They reminded me, I grew up in Texas, of the Texas Longhorn, uh, the uh, sort of image of the uterus and fallopian tube. And those symbols are things that will always set off little sparks in my mind. Uh, When I see a picture, I will always see pancakes. I will always go right back to sixth grade science class. I'll always be able to see the faces of the girls who surrounded me. And I'll always think of the Texas Longhorn. The reason I bring up this story is because sometimes I see those images everywhere. uh, And Pattern recognition is something that is so, so common in all of us. And the place that I saw that pattern again and again and again is in Guillermo del Toro's 2006 masterpiece, Pan's Labyrinth. I totally just saw how this intro came together. 
Yeah. Well done. We um we saw The Shape of Water recently, Guillermo del Toro's latest film, which is Oscar nominated in several categories. And we were kind of spurred back into a, a consuming of his work, which is, of course, always visually stunning and full of reference and homage to other fairy tales, to other myths, and to other pieces of cinema and art. And so we thought that Pan's Labyrinth, because of its rich, its dense iconography and its very you know potent themes might be a really great thing for us to explore here on The Midnight Myth in the wake of this latest release. Yeah, that's really cool. You know, it was interesting. We saw The Shape of Water, which I highly recommend everyone go out and financially support that movie, especially if you like uh, Del Toro's other work. And when we left that, one of the things that we instantly said to each other was, we need to rewatch Pan's Labyrinth. It'd been too long. I happened to have it on DVD um, it the content's locked down, so if you don't have it on DVD, it's rentable, streamable on many, many platforms. And while we were re-watching it, we realized we had to do a podcast about this movie, Pan's Labyrinth. came out in 2006, and one of the symbols that you see in Pan's Labyrinth under close examination are these sort of um, uteruses, these vaginal symbols, the symbol of Pan that we see um, it's over the labyrinth has this sort of general uterine shape, which connects to your pancakes. Yeah. Quite brilliant. <laughs> so I'm going to throw anybody else is hungry oh. for pancakes. Yes. now. That's totally natural. Pancakes are uteruses. Or if you never want to eat pancakes again, after hearing that story also equally, natural, equally natural. So I guess I'll throw up a spoiler wall. Now we're going to spoil 2006, um, Pan's Labyrinth. However, the movie is not spoilable, meaning that the very first scene of the movie is of the main character, Ophelia, a child bleeding out to death. It's one of those narratives that starts at the end, and then you then get to see how it happens. The other thing that, for me, I'll put myself on blast, it's in Spanish, and you do have to read subtitles. Very difficult thing for me to do. As a dyslexic person, reading and watching at the same time are really hard. Um, but that being said, I know that a lot of other people have an aversion to foreign films because of the subtitles. This movie is worth the work. It's also uh, it's also such a visual storytelling, uh, you know, piece. It's something that you know hits a lot of uh, classical beats. And throws in many surprises, but it also just captivates you visually so that you can read the story and feel the emotions of the characters, even without necessarily understanding every word that they're saying. All right. Well, so enough preamble. Let's roll up our sleeves and dive into it. So I'd like to begin with the discussion of the title, Pan's Labyrinth. The Pan's Labyrinth title is based off of two things of classical Greek mythology. One, there is the labyrinth, which is not unique to Greece, but is um, strongly baked into Greek mythology with the labyrinth in which the Minotaur lives in the myth of uh, Perseus, if I remember that correctly. Uh, it's or, no, Theseus. Theseus, sorry. I sometimes get it confused. The other is Pan himself. So Pan is a Greek deity. He is the son of Hermes. He has the legs of a goat, the upper body of a man, and goat-like horns. 
Oftentimes you see Pan playing a flute and Pan as a deity is associated with the shepherd. He's associated with the common person, with the woods, with animals, and is also known for traveling around with Dionysus, yeah. who is the god of wine and transformation, gluttony, and, and uh, theater. partying. Yeah, and having a good time. So Pan is a very deliberate choice, I think, by Del Toro. And the reason why I say that, when we first see Pan in the film, we see Pan discussing with uh, Ophelia, the main character at the center of the labyrinth. And she asked Pan his name. And they make an interesting choice in the script. He goes, so many names. Names so old, only the beast can pronounce them, like the earth and the wind and the trees. And he refuses to tell Ophelia his actual name. It's worth noting that in Spanish, the title is a little different. It's the Labyrinth del Fano. And the, um, the, the pen introduces himself as a fawn. As a fawn, yeah. As the idea that there are many fawns. The word fawn comes from Latin. It comes from fanos. Fanos is the Latin word for pan. So Pan and, fa- and the Fawn are one. I think we can understand that this creature is this Greek god. However, why does he not introduce his name? Well, what other character from modern storytelling introduces him or herself as nameless or so many names? That's Satan. And that's a direct connection between Pan and Satan. And hold with me, folks, because this may seem like Ooh, Derek's going on another crazy tangent. <laughs> so way back in the you know late Roman Empire, Christianity started propping up and becoming more and more powerful, became more and more integrated into the Roman imperial state. As the Roman emperors became Christian, so did the power of the church and the remaining Roman arist- aristocracy, pardon me, became Christian. They had a problem on their hands. And the problem was, how do we convert everyone to Christianity? Now, if I say, audience, think of the most popular Greek gods. You're probably going to say Zeus. You're probably going to say Apollo. You're going to say Athena. You're going to say Ares. You know, all of these very prominent and powerful gods in the mythology. But as I've said in other podcasts, in the ancient world, the mythology and the cults were not one. Not like we have today, where we have a text that says this is how we pray, then we go to the church, and that's where we pray. Well, there were myths and cults. In ancient Greece, it's mythos and cultos, and they are not necessarily the same. In the Roman Empire, the most prominent cult was the cult of Pan. The most popular cult was the cult of Pan. And the reason for that's pretty simple because Pan is a god of the common people, for the shepherds, you know, for the forest. So if you're going to travel through the forest uh, to try to go and just move firewood in the middle of winter uh, from one neighborhood to another, yeah, you pray to Pan. Yeah, he's, he's your yeah, patron. Yeah, right? You're not praying to Zeus. What, what good is the lightning bolt? You're not praying to uh, Jupiter for that. It's going to be Pan. It's going to be Phanos. So because he's the god of the common people— the effort to convert the commoners was constantly running into the, the, the roadblock of we can't snuff out the cult of Pan. 
We can't snuff out the fawns. What is one of the ways that you do that? You do not deny the existence of Pan. You do not deny the existence of Fados. You say, yes, these are deities. Yes, if you go to their cults and pray to them, you may get their favor. However, Pan is the devil. And what you're engaging in is devil worship. Flash forward a couple hundred years. Now the devil and Pan, iconography-wise, that's not a word, Iconographically. Iconographically. Perhaps. I'm not sure if that's a word. So the iconic the uh, iconography of Pan, goat legs, human body, horns, horns, becomes the devil. Pan and Satan become one. And I think Del Toro, and I don't know, but I think Del Toro's clever enough to know this and to know that there is a bit of mischief and a bit of, you know, Fossian devilish bargain going on between Ophelia and the fawn, who says he doesn't have a name, who says he's got too many names, rather. Too many names to name. I'm just a fawn. You know, and you should trust me. I'll get you to eternal life. All you got to do is these three simple tasks to make sure you're pure. And I think there is a little bit of Satan in the way that they wrote this character. There's temptation and there's trickery, yeah. And at the very end, the third task is in and of itself a lie. And Ophelia is even taught to not trust the fawn when she talks to the character Mercedes. When says, Mercedes, I saw a fawn. Mercedes' response is, my mother taught me, don't ever trust a fawn. Yeah. Almost saying, we are not supposed to trust the devil, right, guys? You know, the devil might be there, might be real, but if we go down the road of the devil, we'll probably end up worse than where we began. And in a certain extent, Ophelia kind of does. I digress. Why does this matter? I would submit that the transition of societies is always route with pain, historically speaking. And what I mean by that is as the Roman Empire in what is now considered Western Europe crumbled in the late Roman Empire, and we saw the emergence of what some call the Dark Ages, some call the Medieval Ages, the transition out of a central power to a bunch of desperate, poor, and ignorant states that became medieval Europe. The snuffing out of Pan into Satan is a painful exercise. And it's one that you have to do when you transition from one society to the other. And caught in between that, the regular person who just goes to worship at the altar of Pan becomes a devil worshiper, well, you know, late Roman, early medieval people weren't kind to devil worshipers. So things didn't fare so well for them, if you get my drift. What's so interesting, I think, about this idea of the painful transition of societies and the snuffing out of the cults, the snuffing out of those uh, sort of tribal uh, allegiances, is that we know Pan's Labyrinth as a movie is a fairy tale and is a delightful and, and marvelous and tragic fairy tale on one level, but it's also a story of political intrigue and political pain and uprising and, and, and horror. Uh, one of the key scenes where we see you know, villagers lining up with their ration cards, uh, the Captain Vidal, who is the you know vicious fascist captain, he's the under, bad guy. Yeah, he's the bad guy under uh, you know the regime of Franco uh, in Spain. Is uh, one of one of his uh, his guys is working the line, essentially uh, co opting Christian prayer and saying, "This is your daily bread in Franco's Spain. 
This is, you know, the source of your resources. We are the people providing for you and you may have, you know, your little cult, but we're the ones who are feeding you and we are the ones who, you know, Christ is on our side. Yeah. I'm glad that you pointed that out because I think we can understand the, the movie takes place in 1944, mid 20th century Spain. At the end of Spain's civil war, a real historic event. And that gave rise to Spain as a fascist society, which lasted until the 70s. And the pain of that transition from a free society to a fascist society, and in which we see, where does this take place, this drama? In a village on the outskirts. The main battle has already been fought for the capital and the government's been set up. And we're just here to snuff out the last of the resistance Yep, to convert the rest of the people to our cause. The last of the pagans worshiping Pan need to be brought forth. And what is that? And I think Del Toro is clever enough in that story when they're saying the daily bread, there is a direct connection, I think, between the end of Rome and pagan Rome and the emergence of medieval Christianity to the end of the rebels in the Spanish Civil War and the emergence of Franco's fascist Spain. Amazing. It's fucking brilliant what yeah, this movie does. Absolutely. It, it just, and it blows my mind. And when I first saw the movie back in 2006, I wasn't so up on my Roman history as I am today. And seeing that and then seeing and knowing how um, you know Rome went from pagan to Catholic than to you know a Roman Empire to a medieval papal empire, and knowing how that transition happened, seeing Pan talk about himself as if he were Satan from the eyes of the the Roman Catholics at this time when we're seeing the secularization of you know fascist dictatorships in Spain, it really just triggered this process. So I'm like, oh, I see what this movie's doing. That's really fucking clever. Yeah. Uh, So the other transition, though, that is taking place at the same time as we're watching this, uh, you know, these cults be snuffed out, if if we can use that same phrasing, this uprising be snuffed out into the, you know, the birth of this, uh, you know, freedomless regime is this fairy tale that's going on alongside and the story of Ophelia, who is our our heroine. Right on. Uh, and she follows uh, so many of the same, uh, you know, beats of the classic hero's journey or the classic, uh, you know, like grim fairy tale or Perot fairy tale. Uh, and yet this story, more than anything, is about the end of childhood, right? Whether that's the end of, of literal, like, growing up into being an adult or if that's the end of hope, the end of hope for resistance, uh, and Ophelia's journey is wrought with pain. It's wrought with loss. And here's where I'm going to revisit these images of the feminine and these images of the uterus. Uh, Pan's face, uh, Pan's face and head, like you said before, is this image of the uterus and fallopian tubes. And there is so much iconography of blood and bloodletting. The book that is telling Ophelia her tales is uh, you know opening up with blood in spirals that look like fallopian tubes. There's so much pain and strife that is connected to the womb, whether that be to uh, the the process of menstruation or the process of giving birth as a woman, both which are rites of passage that you know take you out of innocence and into womanhood. 
uh, and represent the most painful transition for Ophelia. Yeah, uh, I totally agree. And I think, you know, we see Ophelia, you know, first we see her in, in her death scene, but even at the beginning, we see Ophelia riding in the car with her mother in the very first real scene, the mother is pregnant. The pregnancy we can tell is already very complicated. They're going to the wilderness. You know, the mother needs air. And the mother's first thing is like, why'd you take all these fairy tale books? As if like, why are you clinging on to this? You know, you're at this point where you should be letting this go. Yeah, you're 11. You're about to physically become a woman. It's time to let go of nonsense. It's time to let go of childish things. Right. And Ophelia's entire pull is just like, yeah, but look at this world you're asking me to become an adult into. Yeah, like right. I'd much rather yeah. believe in magic than have to submit to this. Yeah, and have to be like, okay, I'm complicit in watching my mom and my stepfather, you know, in this you know horrible fascist regime that uses force, violence, and aggression to demand obedience from the weak and the helpless. I think Ophelia doesn't make a political argument at any point in the movie. No. But her actions, to me, do. I think she symbolizes a political action in many times because the mother gets out of the car in the very first scene. And what does Ophelia do? She finds a stone. She picks it up. There's an eye on the other side. And then she finds this ancient stele, this ancient stone like sculpture, and just puts, missing the eye, puts the eye in, and then she sees the fairy for the first time. Her choice to walk away and her choice to explore this wilderness opens up this magical, realistic world and has her interact with the very first magical creature. And then based upon that, that opens up her doorway. And what makes her the princess? What makes her the chosen one to go back to the underworld? The fact that she believes. Yeah. And her choice, uh, her her chaos, her inner disorder, and her her drawn the fact that she is drawn to things that are uh, that are sometimes messy and that are sometimes uh, disgusting and scary and horrible, but in a, a fantastical way, is something that makes her uh, fascinating for us and that makes her really human. That makes her the ideal candidate for. Uh, you know, a princess. And it's also what sets her up as the opposite of fascism, right? Fascism, uh, and I'm going to go back to the image of the labyrinth here to sort of make a metaphor for this, um, because the labyrinth is, as we said, an ancient, ancient symbol. Uh, and it's something that is often conflated with the idea of a maze. But in general, the two are considered two different concepts. A maze is the kind of place where you can get lost. It's the hedges where there are dead ends and there are you know, paths you can follow that take you nowhere. And there are so many places to get messed up. But a labyrinth is often depicted as what's called unicursal, which means it is this one uh, it's one path and it's winding and it goes in circles and it takes forever, but it takes you to one singular center and it is order. It is rigidity. It is something that is completely free of choice and it is fascism, right? Where Ophelia is something where you can get lost. Ophelia is, is a character who indulges her own impulses, 
who makes choices, who disobeys. And she sets up this incredible foil for the idea of uh, lack of choice, of lack of freedom. Hmm. Yeah, interesting. Yeah, I'm just, I'm chewing on that because I literally had no idea that a labyrinth and a maze weren't the same thing. And sometimes that just, they that's are. That's totally brand new to sometimes me. Sometimes they are. Right. In the Theseus and the Minotaur, it, that's, that's a maze. It's called a labyrinth, but that is, you know, a, a labyrinth that you can get lost in. But traditionally, a labyrinth is a very man-made, weird, not point A to point B, but twisty-turny that gets you... To the center. So let me ask you this then, and maybe I'm, I'm hearkening on the wrong detail. So stop me if I'm like derailing your point. Do you think that the labyrinth that we see in Pan's Labyrinth is a labyrinth or a maze? It's, it's a question because, uh, because the experiences of the characters on opposite ends of the spectrum, Ophelia and, uh, and Vidal, are so different within the labyrinth and their experiences of the world are so different. One experiences a world that is full of magic, and one experiences the, a world that is mach machine, that is mechanical, that you can pull apart and fix. And yet, when they get in the labyrinth, Ophelia is able to make her way right through via magic, and Vidal gets lost in the contemplation. So it's, it's, it's an interesting question, and one I don't know that I'm equipped to answer because mm -hmm. the experiences are so warped and the experiences are so symbolic within the labyrinth. Okay. But I think it's an interesting metaphor and it, it tells it us is. a lot about, uh, you know, those two sides of that spectrum. Because one of the major themes of the, the movie is the role of fascism and what it does to individuals. And we see those individuals, whether that is Captain Vidal, who grows up as a fascist military person, what that means for him, what that does to the farmers. So the farmers that uh, just get rounded up at the beginning of the movie and are, are thought to maybe be rebels, and Vidal just brutally murders them. As it turns out, they were just farmers out on a hunt. You know, what it does to the rebels. The rebels are highly individualized. You know, we don't get to know all of them, but the ones that we get to know, the guy who gets his leg chopped off, the guy who stutters, and then the brother of Mercedes. I think Del Toro goes to great pains to humanize yeah. uh, the effects of fascism. And then, of course what fascism does ultimately to Mercedes, Ophelia and Carmen are three heroines of the movie and how that, that it affects them. And I think if we can understand the labyrinth as a metaphor for fascism, the idea that the path isn't straight, but it gets to one place. Well, a fascist regime has, has to control the truth. Yeah. They have to control knowledge by any way, shape or form for it to exist, it has to create a narrative, and that narrative is the government, the dictator, the ruler is right all the time without question. And any any wiggle room in that, it crumbles it like a house of cards. And we see that played in this movie, and Ophelia's role is to say, your hyper-realistic world is actually covered and trickled and layered in with beauty and nonsense and weirdness. Yeah. And like her expression of that is a direct challenge to the fascists that say, no, it's order, it's time, it's control, you know? And ultimately in this one moment, the chaos, the, the beauty, the weirdness does get to overwhelm the fascist. Yes. 
There are there are so many dualities that are set up within this film that Guillermo del Toro is really playing off of. Uh, some of these being, like I said before, the uh, duality of childhood and adulthood. Uh, childhood, which is indulgent and is able to accept magic and is able to accept fairy tale and is able to go on adventures and be curious and, and full of wonder. And adulthood, which is portrayed as of course, realistic, as pragmatic, as sometimes pessimistic. Um, but one of the binaries that I want to draw some attention to in the way that Del Toro treats it within this film as well is the binary of masculine and feminine, which I think gets a different treatment in this, uh, in this film than I've seen almost anywhere. Go on. I'm intrigued. And this is why I think the imagery of childbirth and the imagery of, uh, of menstruation is so important is because it these are the taboos of uh, of the feminine, of the biological feminine that we are so afraid of uh, today that we're like unable to talk about for some reason because it squicks us out. But this movie, I think, embraces it, embraces the blood, embraces the grossness and the disorder of it, uh, and and in the same way embraces many of the qualities that are laid out by uh, by mythologies and by legends and by. Uh, you know, stories from all generations and how they deal with women. Um, I don't think I have to tell anyone about Original Sin. I don't think I have to educate anyone about Pandora's box necessarily. I mean, but uh, for the sake of being good podcast people, yeah. give us just a quick... But so there are so many women in our mythologies who are the downfall of man, Right. Eve, who eats the apple in the Garden of Eden, who, who tastes the forbidden fruit, uh, you know, puts an end to paradise. She, uh, she commits the first sin on earth by being tempted by eating an apple. And because of her, we all have to seek redemption for that original sin. Uh, we have Persephone, who eats the pomegranates in the, uh, in the underworld, even though she was expressly forbidden to do so, uh, and would never be able to leave the underworld because of that. We have um, Pandora, who opened the box that unleashed all of the negativity and pain and diseases upon the earth. We have women throughout, uh, not just biblical and classical mythology, but even Shakespeare. We have, uh, you know, we have Arthurian legend. We have so many women. I could, I could prattle them off here. Psyche. Uh, Morgan Le Fay, Medea, so many women who are considered deceitful witches. They are, uh, they're chaotic. They are emotional. They are, uh, they're rash. They disobey and they become the villains of their own narratives because of the pain they unleash on the world. And I think something that's amazing about Del Toro and how he treats the feminine within this story is that he doesn't say, no, women aren't any of those things. Women aren't disobedient. Women aren't deceitful. Women aren't, you know, gross and disgusting. Women are those things, and that's not a weakness. That is a strength. Ophelia's strengths come from the fact that she disobeys orders time and time again, that she makes choices that are sometimes unpredictable, that she follows her gut, that she undermines the captain that she believes in nonsense and mercedes and hold on one can i say one more just quick thing about ophelia yeah she doesn't follow the fawn but at the very end wants to kill her brother she questions to open the porter at the very end she goes no i i'm not letting you kill my brother even the fawn's like 
you you swore to obey me. And she's just like, sorry, that's my that's my boy. She constantly questions authority. Sorry to interrupt you. Yeah. You're on such a great rant. No, that's absolutely amazing. And Mercedes, who hides a knife within her dress, uh, is able to is able to take on the captain and overthrow his small portion of the fascist regime because she is sneaky and, and because deceitful. she's deceitful and she is in it uh, for hopeful, optimistic reasons. She is here preserving a piece of her own childhood that allows her to believe there's a way out of this, that allows her to believe she can still win. And because of that, she is powerful. I think it's a really brave thing to do to present women uh, in a way that is in the fullness of their own sort of biological femininity. Yeah, um, I think that's a great point. And I think the film is, you know, it, besides its uterine imagery, besides its vaginal imagery, like the fig tree, um, and besides its its uh, sort of ritualistic bloodletting that makes us think about menstruation and childbirth, it's also accompanied by things like the moon, which is historically and mythologically associated with the feminine. Artemis. Artemis um, and and Celine and so many other figures um, that controls the tides that is is sometimes chaotic that makes people crazy right but is associated with the feminine um, the left hand the left side is associated with the feminine and what does Vidal do when he first meets Ophelia she offers her left hand to shake his and he says no it's the right hand because he rejects that idea of the sinister left hand, which is not only associated with feminine, it's associated with evil, with the devil. Um, I'm ranting a little bit, but I think this is a really exciting uh, sort of innovation of the fairy tale. Well, I, I think if I remember correctly, and correct me if I'm wrong, I think Del Toro did an interview about Pan's Labyrinth in which he stated he wanted to make a female-driven fairy tale in which every female in it was was not helpless, was the sort of author of their own destiny yeah. rather than subject to the whims of destiny. Absolutely. And I think in in you know, especially Ophelia and Mercedes, he delivers that promise incredibly well. And he made it sort of as a companion piece to his uh previous film, The Devil's Backbone, which is another film that takes place during the Spanish Civil War and in the same kind of time and place. But he describes himself as being a very masculine film, as being a film concerned with the masculine energy. And he wanted to make this sister film, literally, where we're able to explore the feminine energy in a new way. Yeah, and I think to that end, it is it is very successful. I think one of the, the ways that Del Toro tells a story is that he creates a world that is both visually appealing and challenging and allows you to walk into uh, both of it from like, you feel like you're watching a moving painting at some points yeah. as well as he is a master of understanding point of view. He will put us in the point of view we need to be to see the story that he wants to tell. Right. And it's so sincere and unpretentious. Yeah. You know, it almost is like when we debate and discuss del Toro, Del Toro's movies, you know, it feels like we we add a lot to it because so much can be said in there, but they're at the at the heart of it. This movie, Pan's Labyrinth, is very simple. Right. Right. It's not complex. It's just under two hours long. 
right? So it's not a very long movie, you know, but yet it's pacing feels like you are always taking time. Every place that you're at, you never feel rushed, even though it's not a very long movie. I think because of that, we're able to walk away with a really complex view of this world that these characters go through. And we can't help but start to dissect and pull apart and ask, what was he asking of me? Right. Because you know, like when he puts that much effort into that movie, we we should put that much effort back in. I agree. Like you feel almost obligated to be like, you know, this is not a movie I should just watch and walk away. This is a movie I need to watch and rewatch and discuss. And I do think the central theme of reclaiming the feminine fairy tale as not a tale of a hopeless victim subject to the whims of more powerful things, but a, a one that is fundamentally empowered is at the, the heart of this, this movie. And it does so with three trials that the fairy princess needs to go through. Like the oldest trick in the book is the three trials for the fairy princess or the fairy prince. You know, like that's not a new idea at all. You know, it's not a new idea to have pan or a fawn in right. it, to have fairies in it. Like none of the ideas are necessarily new, but it's the way that he puts them and slices them together. Yeah. That makes it. Now I'm just I'm just throwing on praise to the movie at this point. I'm but, fucking fanboying hard. But you're on a hard. roll. Like yeah. Del Toro knows his sources, right? He knows the hero's journey. He knows Joseph Campbell inside out, and because of that, he is able to upend certain uh conventions in a way that still feels like it belongs within this canon. Uh you know, what do we see about Ophelia the first time we we encounter her is that she picks up this eye and places it back in the statue. And it's sort of this direct corollary to Odysseus in a way. I thought about Odysseus and the, uh, and, and Polyphemus, the, um, uh, the Cyclops. Sorry. I don't know why that was so hard for me. Uh, and the Cyclops that he fights, he, he puts his eye out, you know, he attacks and he is violent in this, in this pursuit. And Ophelia is more humane Ophelia is is a creature whose first act is to restore the eye to the Cyclops. And all of her... Uh, I love that, by the way. All of her trials... That's brilliant. <laughs> right. All of her trials echo things that we've seen in mythology before, but she makes a different choice. She, you know, she indulges her own instincts. And I think that, that Del Toro knows exactly the world that he is working in. And because of that... He's able to give us something completely new out of a formula that we have always known. Yeah. Can I talk about our antagonist a little bit to please, change gears? Please, please, please. So I want to go to Captain Vidal. So some fun facts about Captain Vidal in doing research for the podcast. Uh, the name Vidal translated into English means life. So in English, he'd be Captain Life. Yeah. I like to start there when we think of what does this character represent? If all the characters have a mythological root, what is his? And I would argue that he is Kronos or Saturn. So Kronos or Saturn, Kronos in Greek, Saturn in Rome, is a titan in the Greek mythology, one of the most original beings of the universe. Now, Kronos had a whole host of children and was worried that the children would grow up and supplant him. So he consumes, he eats his own children. And the last child, his wife... Rhea, right? Yeah, his wife Rhea, Rhea, um, and also his sister, 
So she's like a little upset. Yeah. Well, you know, they uh, represent the basic human impulses, which are all pretty gross. Bang, bang, bang. And so uh, Rhea kind of sad that all of her children are being eaten. um, Just sort of takes Zeus away and then puts a stone and then Kronos eats the stone. Then Zeus grows up. And then what does he do? He cracks Kronos's head open. All the other uh, children pop out and they become the Olympians. Oh, it's an amazing story. Just a quick side note, not to boomerang too hard, but Do of it. course, one of Del Toro's earlier films was called Kronos, and also uh, one of the major visual style, uh, you know, touch points for uh, Pan's Labyrinth and for Del Toro's work is Francisco Goya, the painter who was painting during the Spanish Civil War, and he has an amazing painting of uh, of Kronos, Saturn devouring his children, that is uh, pretty much frame for frame lifted by the ogre uh, character in Pan's Labyrinth. Anyway, go on. Anyway, wow, you beat me there. So anyway, because I'm going to get, no, that's quite all right. Perfectly awesome placed Midnight Myth Boomerang. So Kronos is also often associated with time, sometimes conflated, not intentionally, not correctly, rather as father time. Right. Um, And the word chronological is based off of Kronos. Um, there is speculation to what extent the intention of Kronos as the creator and father of time really, really is baked into the mythology. But anyway, I digress. So he is associated with time. He eats his children. The first shot we see of Vidal is when uh, Ophelia and her mother are pulling up. And what is he doing? He's holding a watch. Yeah. The watch face, however, is broken. We come to find out why later. But he's holding the watch and it's broken. He says 15 minutes late. 15 minutes late, pardon me. So we see right out of the gate his obsession with time, with order, everything in the right place. Then we flash forward to the scene in which Vidal has all of the local people in the town that are important. The priest, the doctor, the mayor, their wives, all over for a feast. While they are discussing rationing out food and essentially starving the people into submission as a way to defeat the rebels, they're just lavishly sitting there and eating. And one of the uh, other military men there says, "Yay! I knew your father. Apparently, when he died in battle, he smashed his watch so that his son would know the time of his father's death. Yeah. And Vidal dismisses this as just flights of fancy. His father never owned a watch even though we as the audience already know he has that watch. A watch that we see him, I think, in two scenes repairing. So not only does he have the watch, but he repairs the watch. And he denies the power of his father in that story. Yeah. He denies that there is a generation that was before him that was maybe more powerful. So we see the jealousy and the rage of Kronos as he controls and tries to manipulate time. And I think then we juxtapose this to the ogre when Ophelia's second task is to go into this sort of other dimension by drawing chalk doors on her bedroom and she sees the ogre. What does the ogre do? The ogre eats children. The ogre is sitting in the same table position as Vidal is in his feast and the scenes are sort of parallels so as I would, I'd say that the structure of the movie, especially in the first, like, you know, like 45 minutes, as something happens to Vidal, it happens to Ophelia and vice versa. 
Now, as the movie becomes more intertwined towards the end, that structure structure starts to break down as the walls of reality are breaking down, both for Ophelia and for Vidal. So as their worldviews are caving in, so does the structure. But at the start, Vidal goes through a trial, Ophelia goes through a trial, and vice versa. Vidal has a feast, Ophelia goes to a feast. Vidal goes into the woods, Ophelia goes into the woods. And so we can understand that the ogre is another form of Kronos, the child eater, the father, the father energy gone awry, gone psychotic, gone, you know, wanting to devour. And I think this is also a metaphor of fascism. Yeah. That wants to control its youth, that wants to control the next generation, afraid that it'll supplant it, it must submit it, it must force it to obey. And the main driving motivation of Medal, other than killing his enemies, which as a soldier is his thing to do, is to make sure that he has his son. And he doesn't want his son because he wants a child. He wants a son because he wants to control that masculine energy. Yes. So that he can shape it. Because should this child turn out to be a daughter, he would be enraged. You know, the doctor says to him, how do you know it's a son? And his response is, don't fuck with me. Because it's not even an option, right? A man as virulent and masculine and, and uh, you know, just manly as hell as Vidal could never produce a feminine offspring, right? That's an affront to his own masculinity. And I think Vidal's true, uh, you know, fatal flaw, if we can call it that, is his underestimation of the feminine energy, right? I totally agree. I think Mercedes even calls that out. I was able to do this. When she gets captured and is being tortured, almost tortured, she never gets tortured, but almost tortured, she says, you know, I was invisible to you. That's why I got away with this. Yeah. And he even says, you understand my weakness. My weakness is pride. You know, and I thought that's a beautiful, beautiful scene that highlights the, the the antagonist. And I think this movie doesn't work without a fully fleshed out, complex and interesting bad guy in Vidal. Yeah. Yeah. And one of the last things he says to Mercedes before she turns on him is, for God's sake, she's just a woman. He's unable to contemplate that, you know, a woman could be plotting against him and could be successful. And he is, he's so fascinating in his, in his rigidity and in his uh, in his dedication to his own, uh, you know, fascist obedience. And to me, the lesson is that the next generation will always replace the current generation. It is our place as aging and then eventually old men to accept, understand, and embrace the next generation, and to instead of trying to control it, but to set it free. And Vidal doesn't get that lesson. And because of that, any other form of new life is a threat to him. Yeah. A threat that must be contained, controlled, and if it's obedient enough, it can be allowed to live. But if it steps out of line, just for a second, it must be killed. And that's universal, right? He's Voldemort. He is uh, he's Oedipus's father. He's Darth Vader. He's all of these characters throughout time who are threatened by the idea of a new generation that will rise up and supplant them because I am the most powerful. 
He's Kronos. He's Kronos. And because of that, inevitably, Vidal's fate, like Kronos, is sealed. For if Kronos were to allow his children to live with him and live with Rhea, he could have been their tutor, their guide. He could have been their father in a complete and real and healthy way. But because he ate them, he sealed his doom that they would one day come back to kill him. And just like that, Vidal doesn't get the satisfaction of knowing that his son will know him. The last scene of Vidal is him saying, tell my son what time his father died. Tell him. And Mercedes cuts him off saying, no, he will not know your name and shoots him in the face. I think it's very telling what literally happens to Vidal in this final moment after he's proven himself to be the deepest evil who's capable of taking the life of an innocent child. Uh, he's shot in the face and his right eye fills up with blood. The right side, like I said before, being associated with the masculine also echoes that first moment of Ophelia picking up the stone that, that uh, you know, represents the eye of that stone and placing it back. It reminds us that the character that we've followed, the child that we've followed, who will never get to be a woman, who will never grow up and see you know, the world from the other side, made the humane choice in the beginning, even if it was just a lifeless rock. I think one of the most powerful things that Del Toro does in this film is show us a breadth of, of humanity. It shows us the most evil, which is a man who who accepts only his own masculine energy. And then it shows us this spectrum, like the doctor who is male, who is a man and who takes pride in being a man and being powerful and yet respects women. It shows us a man who is willing to have his own leg amputated to save his life, even though in so many other stories, that's a symbolic emasculation. It, it's a moment of grief, but it's a moment of, I have to do this to get by for my people. Uh, you know, it shows us, uh, Mercedes, who is sort of the version of, of Ophelia, if she had grown up, who is able to uh, understand people from a level that a man who can only see his own masculinity would never be able to estimate. And it reminds me of some really famous words spoken to another character named Ophelia uh, in, in English literature. And that line of, of language is, frailty, thy name is woman. And that's from Shakespeare's Hamlet. And I think Del Toro is picking this apart and saying, those frailties, those things that we uh, you know, assert as disorder, as sin, that are attributed to the feminine, are actually part of all of us. And if we can embrace those, those are the most humane parts of us. Because every one of us has a masculine and a feminine, whether we are biologically male, female, or somewhere else. You know, they, the unification of those energies creates power rather than weakness. And even if we're on the same sort of winding labyrinth path that has this singular conclusion, we have resistance, we have chaos, we have disorder, we have disobedience, and all of those will continue to sow the seed that will upend that order. Yeah. If I may introduce a different idea for discussion. Yeah. So... We talk a lot about popular culture on this podcast. Yeah, we do. We discuss a lot of things that are very important. 
so many of the artifacts that we uh, discuss and dissect and disseminate deal with serialization and adaptation. Yes. Or some combination of the both. In other words, proven workable stories, stories that have, have a basis in something already. This is true in Star Wars and the latest iterations of Star Wars, which are based upon the originals. This is true of the comic book genre, which is doing adaptations from comic books. This is true of Big Little Lies, which we talked about just two or three weeks ago, which is based off of a book. I'd like to just take a minute and pause and say, I think there's nothing wrong with serialization or adaptation on their face value. And I don't disagree with them. In fact, some of the media that I love the most is either a serialization or an adaptation or both. So I'm not anti it, but I think when you come at doing something original, an original doesn't mean that it is completely never thought of and never done before. It doesn't mean that it isn't based on something. It doesn't mean that it isn't inspired by something, but original in the respect that you start with an empty chalkboard, an empty uh, notebook, a blinking cursor on a computer screen, wherever that starting point is, you start there and then you come up with your idea. When you do the original story really well, I think that you hit on something um, that offers sometimes, not always, a little bit more. Yeah. You know, and that we're at a point where people are making the safe choices more than the bold ones, more often than not when it comes to what art will be made and what art won't be made. And it's great to see that that is not the only uh, industry trend. That there's room for this kind of storytelling. Uh yeah, I think that Del Toro, as richly populated, as densely populated as his work is by reference and by homage, he is making some of the most uh, strange and unusual and powerful and original works of art that we're seeing in Hollywood. Uh, he tells a story about being a child and being visited in his sleep, in his dreams, by a fawn uh, who, you know, came to him every night at midnight and told him to do things. He's drawing from a wealth of dream and from a wealth of myth that sits so, so deeply within us that we recognize its images, and yet it makes us think, it makes us dream of a world we have never imagined in fairy tale or in cinema. Yeah, and Shape of Water is... Yes, 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 yes. You know, and I'm not going to spoil it, but it's a truly unique movie It is about a woman and a monster who fall in love. And it's really hard when I say to someone how much I love Shape of Water. And they're like, what's it about? And I'm like, it's about a woman and a monster who fall in love. And they're like, what? It's about, you know, a sea monster in a lab and a woman. And uh, they fall in love. But trust me, it's really great. And like, so original. And then when you like, when you watch the movie, you realize how much it draws upon, how much it draws from. And that, you know, and how much respect it has from the source. And I think Pan's Labyrinth is the same. Yeah. It respects where it comes from when I think sometimes originality means 
breaking and smashing the paradigms. Yes. Think of Charlie Kaufman, right? Think of being John Malkovich. It's like, you know what? Stories are supposed to be told this way. Fuck you. I'm going to Hunter S. Thompson up this shit. I'm going to Terry Gilliam up this shit. (laughs) You know, I'm going to tell this story the way I want to tell it. No conventions and go fuck yourself. I'm Stanley motherfucking Kubrick this shit. And I think I respect that too. I love that as a matter of fact, you know, and that's great too. But what Del Tormo does is a little more generous. Yeah. You know, it's a little more, you know, conventional storytelling. It gets a lot right, but it gets a lot wrong. So I'm going to take the things that I like the most about it. And I'm going to add my own little splice that I think could make it better. It's a little more generous to, to the standard uh, and in it, you get this delightful, you know, works of art that, that he has produced. And I can say this, I'm going to put myself on blast. I'm only familiar with really intimately two of his movies, which are Pan's Labyrinth and The Shape of Water. So I'm not going to pretend that I'm the expert on his work because I'm not. But in both of those, I think he shows tremendous respect for the stories that inspired it while totally smashing that respect and telling an entirely new narrative in a way that I think I can't think of another storyteller that does that. There's nobody really like him. And he makes work so infrequently because he's known for turning down contracts that he's not completely in love with the story or not completely on board with every uh, decision the story is making. But I am think... I, am I right that he did the story of Pan's Labyrinth and The Shape of Water? Or am I wrong about that? Uh, yeah, there's there are often collaborations right. on the screenplay, but but yeah, those are he, his stories. But those are always his original ideas with other awesome, brilliant people. Right. Okay, sorry to interrupt. Yeah, and he's taken some big contracts like Hellboy and Pacific Rim, but so many of those he's turned down because he can't get fully on board. And I think what we can really respect about him is that he loves the classics and he makes classics and they explode us out into different directions that are so unexpected and so surprising that they give us a completely new frame of reference and give us a modern classic in the making. Yeah. I think uh, in final thought um, here, if you don't mind me. Absolutely. I think uh, Pan's Labyrinth, we wanted to talk about this so much with you guys that we really don't want to know what you think and feel. We didn't even bother doing a summary. Sometimes we do that. This was... was yeah. All analysis, because honestly, there's so much to mind. There here. was too much to say. And we could continue. We could actually just keep this dialogue going. Um, but my my last final point that I want to say to everyone out there listening, don't be afraid. Fear is the it's the weapon and the tool of the fascist. They make us afraid and they want us to crave their order. And the last thing I'll say is. We can't be afraid anymore. Amazing. If people want to reach us, Laurel, how can they reach us? You have so many options for how to reach us. Please visit us on Twitter and tweet us at The Midnight Myth or visit us on Facebook or The Midnight Myth Podcast on Facebook. Uh, you can also see our Instagram account at Midnight Myth Podcast. And then our website, www.midnightmyth.com, has a contact form and has some blog material that we'll be updating shortly. Uh, We would love to hear from you. Please hit subscribe on Apple Podcasts or Stitcher or wherever you're getting your podcasts. And if you have the time, drop us a rating or a review. It really helps us get out there and get to new audiences. Most importantly, if people are asking for podcast recommendations, 
tell them where to find us because we want you here and we want to hear from you. And until next time, guys, be kind. Be kind. Be kind.